0: I love the aspect of collaboration when I'm working with an ensemble. There is this continuum of energy and, and flow of ideas and music when I'm on the podium conducting. And there's nothing like that experience of starting a group with an unfamiliar piece of music and bringing them through the process of a performance.
1: That's singer, educator, conductor, and music director of the Desloff Choirs, Malcolm J. Merriweather. And this is Artworks, the weekly podcast produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. I'm Josephine Reed. It's hard to know what's more impressive about Malcolm J. Merriweather, his rare and multifaceted talents or his boundless energy and deep focus. Malcolm is only in his early 30s but a person twice his age would be thrilled with his accomplishments. He has two master's degrees from the Eastman School of Music and a doctorate from the Manhattan School of Music. He has a brilliant career as a singer. He is director of choral studies at Brooklyn College. He is artist in residence at Union Theological Seminary. He is artistic director of Voices of Haiti, a 60 voice children's choir and he's Conductor and Artistic Director of the renowned Desoff Choirs. I'm going to be speaking with Malcolm about all aspects of his career, but I'm going to begin with the Desoff Choirs, which has been called one of the great amateur choruses of our time. Begun in 1924, the choirs are composed of avocational singers who are known for their performances of choral work from pre-Baroque to the 21st century mixing classical choral pieces with contemporary work. In 2016, Malcolm J. Merriweather became the group's ninth music director, adding that jewel to his already diverse career. And it's quite the task since the Desoff choirs consist
0: of three groups of singers. We have a chamber group of about 20 singers, a core group of 60 members, and a symphonic choir of up to 200 members. And we utilize these various choirs for different projects, symphonic projects, chamber music projects. And, but the core choir rehearses weekly throughout our season.
1: And who are the people who make up the choir?
0: They are doctors, they are lawyers, they're teachers. Many are retired. We have college students. It's a really diverse group, and our members come from various backgrounds.
1: Besides a good voice, what do you look for when you're choosing choir members?
0: Well, of course, a good voice is primary, but in an audition, I'm not so much interested in perfection. I'm interested in how a singer thinks. So in any given audition, there would be vocalese and also sight reading and pitch matching and pitch memory exercises. So I'm interested in how singers function and try to figure out errors and how their ears collaborate with their other musicianship skills to go through this audition process.
1: What is the job of the conductor in this particular instance when you're conducting a choir?
0: It's multi dimensional. Of course, my primary responsibility is leading weekly rehearsals and leading the group in concerts. But uh, a lot of planning goes into preparing for those rehearsals. I, of course, select the music for a given season. I audition the membership, and I get to do fun interviews like this (laughs) to talk about the choir and its mission. But it's, it's really multifaceted. I really serve as the face of the organization and the artistic voice. My goal is to inspire each of our singers towards a common goal and a a common mission in a given piece of music. We have the wishes of the composer written down, and it's my job to make that music come off the page and come alive. What do you think the key is to live performance? The key to live performance, I think, is being in the moment, but also being a step ahead and anticipating. I teach at Brooklyn College, and one of the skills that I'm always encouraging our students to hone is to anticipate, uh, whether it be a page turn, whether it be a rest, whether it be a rhythm, because if you're experiencing the music as it's happening you're you're already too late. So in live performance I always try to be a couple of steps ahead as the director of the choir and encourage them to be a step ahead of where they need to be.
1: You've said that the days of the audience sitting in rows looking up at the performers on a stage are rapidly coming to an end.
0: Absolutely. In my role as music director of the Desov Choirs, I've really tried to challenge those norms by placing the choir in positions throughout our performance venue around the audience in a quadraphonic fashion, just to really break down that barrier of audience and performer. I think that's really critical to keep our audiences engaged, and the feedback has been really outstanding.
1: How did you come to Desov?
0: It's interesting, before I became music director, I was a frequent soloist, as a baritone soloist. So I wasn't a stranger to the group. And when the position became vacant, I jumped at the opportunity to apply. And lucky for me, I was successful.
1: (laughs) Now, you're a singer, a conductor, and an educator.
0: Yes, that's correct.
1: Tell me when you began to sing.
0: Well, my mother always tells the story that I was singing as a baby. My formal singing began as a chorister at St. Paul's Cathedral in Buffalo, New York in their Men and Boys Choir, where I participated in two to three weekly services at the cathedral and numerous rehearsals. It's a very serious and rigorous program. And I stayed with that choir through my voice change uh, until I was a senior in high school.
1: What do you remember best from that time?
0: I can remember just being completely mesmerized and entranced by the colors of the pipe organ and the combination of the organ with the voices. And I'll, I'll never forget our, my first performance with, with a Baroque orchestra and seeing the Baroque violone and the bassoon and, and hearing these instruments and watching and observing these musicians play. And it just struck a chord within me.
1: And I would also think it would give you a sense of what that life might be like and the kind of discipline and rigor that you need to bring to any performing art.
0: Absolutely. I can just remember observing the time and the concentration of the orchestra members, of my director, of the organist. And it has certainly been a thread throughout my career to look back on those experiences and think back to what these directors and performers gave to me as as a young child.
1: Did you know right away that this is what you wanted to do?
0: No, not exactly. I knew that I loved music. I knew that I loved performing. But it wasn't until it came time to apply for colleges and I began auditioning at different schools and, you know, received really, really positive feedback that I thought to myself, oh, this could be my career. This, this, this is what I could do for a living. And after that point, I really never looked back.
1: When did you add conducting to your arsenal?
0: I began conducting at Syracuse University. And it's something that I've always been curious and I've never been afraid to take opportunities. And it was an opportunity that really fell into my lap. I was singing in an acapella group and we needed a music director and I was elected the music director. And I, I really enjoyed that leadership aspect and that collaborative role working with ensembles after taking a conducting class and got uh, a master's degree in in conducting. And I think everything in my undergraduate education prepared me to be a conductor from ear training, from uh, studying piano, and eventually studying organ, and of course my, my private voice lessons. All of these aspects are are important when leading a group to prepare the music and prepare each of the vocal parts to understand the role of the instruments in relation to the vocal lines and harmony and rhythm. And and it's complex, but it's wonderful.
1: (laughs) Now tell me what you get from conducting that you don't get from singing and vice versa. I imagine they complement each other beautifully, but I imagine each gives you something that the other perhaps doesn't.
0: Oh, absolutely. I love the aspect of collaboration when I'm working with an ensemble. There is this continuum of energy and, and flow of ideas and music when I'm on the podium conducting. And there's nothing like that experience of starting a group with an unfamiliar piece of music and bringing them through the process of a performance. And the performance is only really 10% for me. Usually the rehearsal process leading up to the concert is the best part. And the concert is really sort of the icing on the cake. And as a singer, sometimes it can be pretty solitary. I mean, if I'm preparing for a solo gig, I'm, I'm practicing at home by myself, and then that collaborative aspect comes in at the end. You're right, they're certainly opposite, but they're definitely complementary.
1: Now, what do you like to sing? What is your voice best suited for? I understand that's two completely different questions, but what do you like to sing and what is your voice best suited for?
0: I love to sing concert music, oratorios, requiems, (laughs) and the great choral orchestral works that have choirs. Uh, And I guess that's not a surprise. And my voice is, I'm a high baritone, so it's best suited for the music of Von Williams and Brahms and really some Handel oratorios. Things like that are sort of what I sink my teeth into.
1: I saw you with Desoff singing O oh Freedom, and you sang the first verse, and then you conducted the choir. How unusual is that?
0: Some people might say it is unusual during our time for the conductor to sort of step out and perform. But when you look back to the 19th century to composers like Beethoven, who would often play piano concertos and also conduct and Liszt and Brahms, it was not that foreign for conductors to showcase their skills as a performer. So I have made a choice to showcase my duality as a singer and a conductor. And I think it brings an interesting texture to concerts for, for audience members to hear solo voice and also then to hear a choir and, and see my role change in, in a matter of minutes uh, when that occurs.
1: I thought it was actually quite wonderful, and I, I was thinking, when have I seen that? Maybe with a pianist, mm-hmm. but I think like a, like Daniel Barenboim.
0: Oh, of course, yeah. yes. It's not so common with, with singers as conductors, yeah. So it's it may be my niche. Yeah,
1: I liked it. It was great. Thank you. What is unique about the voice as an instrument?
0: I think that the voice is the most expressive instrument because... Each color, each vowel, each consonant has life through air and through breath. Now, each human voice is also inherently different. So there are so many colors on the spectrum when I think about the voices in the desov choir. And I've gotten to know all of those voices very well. And their strengths and and the capabilities, their strongs, their softs, the different articulation, the, the range. And it never amazes me what we are able to accomplish.
1: Well, you're also the artistic director of Voices of Haiti.
0: Yes, I am. Tell me about that program. I founded the program at the request of the Andrea Bocelli Foundation in 2016, January 2016, Voices of Haiti is a program that serves 60 children in Port-au-Prince who are uh, disadvantaged. Many come from one of the largest slums in Port-au-Prince. And the program is designed to bring some dignity and hope to their lives as they face extreme social, political, and many other challenges in their lives. So they meet on Saturday mornings, they receive breakfast, and they have vocalizes. I've designed a program where they're learning how to read music, and we have solfege uh, study, and
1: back up. What is that
0: solfege? Uh, it's it's a way of reading music. Do re mi fa sol la si do si la so fa mi re do. You may may uh, recognize it that from I yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so. The the program is comprehensive. They also receive lunch. Uh, nutrition is really important for this program. Oh, I would think. They have come a long way in two years. And it's one of the great joys of my life to travel to Port-au-Prince about once per month, sometimes more, to work with them. And when I'm not there, there are two local musicians who are working with them And they send me recordings of the rehearsals, and I critique the rehearsals and give feedback and and send those notes back to them. It's definitely uh, what I call a passion project because it, it is impacting the greater world through the gift of music.
1: Oh, their singing is so
0: beautiful. Thank you. Sometimes I feel, many times, all the time, I feel like I'm the, the luckiest guy in the world to be able to go and work with them, um, because it's a it's a great joy.
1: And you got to go to Rome and actually sing for the Pope, but then meet him.
0: Yes, that's true. We brought all 60 children across the Atlantic to perform with Andrea Bocelli at his summer, summer festival in Leatico, and... We were able to go to the Vatican and we were received by the Pope and we performed Ave Maria for him and also uh, two traditional Haitian folk songs. And after, after our performance, he greeted every child and he also greeted me and, and that was a, a great and supreme honor.
1: That must have been such an extraordinary experience for those kids.
0: Absolutely, many of the children—I should say all of the children—are deeply religious. Uh, many are Catholic, and there are some that are Protestant, and there are some um, who practice Voodoo. So it is—it's a really diverse group of religious practices.
1: And they also perform in Haiti, of course, and so. Th- oh, of course. So their parents get to see them too, as well as their friends and other relatives.
0: Absolutely, we. We have designed a program that is based on seasons. So we have done Christmas presentations. We've done Mother's Day presentations. We always have a presentation at the end of the year, at the end of the school year in June. And parents and family members, they flock to these performances. I mean, it's the support from the community is overwhelming.
1: (laughs) And what's your hopes for Voices of Haiti?
0: My hope is that these children can always find a sense of expression through their music because I think in in poverty-stricken environments like Port-au-Prince and some of the slums that they live in they're focused on survival. They're focused on water and finding food and and clothes and and where where the next meal is going to come from. So this program strives to really provide a sense of Hope and solace amidst difficult circumstances.
1: Yeah, it's it's like you need bread, but you need roses too, like the old exactly. Union song. Exactly. Back to the United States for a moment, but of course, what about your goals
0: for Detsov?
1: Where would you like to see the choirs in, let's say, a decade?
0: That's a really great question because we're ninety-three years old and we're approaching our centenary in uh, just under a decade. And my goals as music director is certainly to build upon the rich history of working with contemporary composers. And we're really embarking on that next season. We're focusing on the bicentennial of Walt Whitman. And there's a lot of choral music that has utilized Whitman's poetry, and Desoff is actually commissioning five major composers to write new choral works to contribute to that bank of uh, Walt Whitman choral music. And this is an opportunity to really add and build upon the history of performing contemporary and new works. That's so interesting.
1: You know, Alex Ross wrote an article in The New Yorker maybe a few years ago about why concerts stopped consisting of contemporary classical work. Mm -hmm. And he pointed to Beethoven, this is a gross simplification, but Ross said that Beethoven was so venerated, he shaped what we think about classical music and cast such a long and deep shadow that it obscured the work of contemporary composers.
0: Well, yeah, I think that's a very, very good point, that we are performing... Most institutions, music institutions, are performing music by dead white men. And while there is music being created all around us, and it is certainly a goal of mine to explore this music while the composers are still with us. And uh, there's such a just bevy of composers that are based in the New York area, the tri-state area. So I hope to take advantage of that uh, opportunity with Desoff and also continue to provide a place in the New York choral scene for singers who might not necessarily wish to sing the, the big choral orchestral works in the canon of Verdi Requiem and Bach B Minor Mass, and who are, are looking for more of a mid-sized choir experience.
1: You've said that you're trying to keep your foot in the world of traditional music, but at the same time work towards being edgier.
0: Yes. And with that, with the more traditional music, reimagining that music and performing it in, I mentioned this early, multi multidimensional fashion so that we can break down that barrier between our audiences and um, not just standing on stage and singing it, but perhaps joining together with a high school choir and to create an intergenerational opportunity and, and share that music with the future of choral music. <laughs> think draws people to chorus. I think that especially our singers in Desoff, they we rehearse on Monday evenings from 7 to 10. Many come after a long work day and it is a way to express themselves. It is a way to relax perhaps, even though sometimes it's not that relaxing <laughs> because we are really working hard to prepare a Bach Motet in seven weeks is no small feat. But I think that each and every member comes to that rehearsal and makes a commitment to a season because of an underlying passion. It comes from an experience of growing up and singing in a church choir or singing in a high school choir or being in a musical or having their grandmother sing to them as a child. And and it's always interesting to speak with our choir members about their experience with each individual piece.
1: Of music that you're
0: preparing. Yes, our season is is diverse in its repertoire, so there's a lot of different viewpoints, and I think every singer offers a different view of appreciation. And they're not afraid to let me know if they don't appreciate something. (laughs) I think many singers, when we started Little Match Girl Passion, it's, it's a minimalist piece, and there's lots of recurring figures and rhythmic cells that are tricky and cumbersome. And they didn't necessarily like it at the beginning of the process. But by the end, by the concert, by the dress rehearsal, it all made sense. Well,
1: you're also director of choirs at Brooklyn College. Yes, that's correct. What do you think is important to impart to
0: those students? That's a really good question. There are so many things. (laughs) But I think at the top of my list is being a well-rounded musician, not only being a consummate singer, but having skills as a keyboard player, being able to perhaps conduct a little bit. Because to have a career as a professional musician, I believe that a modern professional musician needs to be multifaceted to really make it. So at Brooklyn College, we are not just singing, not just doing opera, our grand opera. We're doing contemporary opera. We are doing chamber music. We are doing choral orchestral works. And we are also working with career development specialists because there's so much that <laughs> needs to be done. And, and for an undergraduate, four years goes by in the blink of an eye. So I always encourage my students to take advantage of every opportunity, whether it be a masterclass, whether it be an opportunity to go to a performance and not just vocal performances. Our students regularly uh, attend wind ensemble performances at the school and uh, performances by our orchestra and also to expand outside the idiom of classical music and get comfortable with jazz. Do you like jazz? Oh, I love jazz. Who do you like? One of my favorite jazz composers is my colleague at Brooklyn College, Arturo O'Farrell, who is the director of the Afro Cuban Jazz Orchestra.
1: Oh, you know, here at the NEA, we give out Jazz Master Awards every year, and it's a lifetime achievement award in jazz. Oh, and Todd Barkin, who is a 2018 NEA Jazz Master, actually produced Arturo's album. The Offense of the Drum, which won a Grammy Award.
0: Oh, okay. Well, I'm not surprised. Let me
1: backtrack just for a second. How long after you got out of school was it before you could support yourself through music?
0: I guess the second I graduated. <laughs> uh, so when you never I... had
1: to have a day job, so to speak.
0: No, I've, I've always been interested in teaching, but teaching through performance. And when I when I graduated from the Eastman School of Music, I earned a position with the New York Choral Society. And I moved to New York and began singing professionally and eventually teaching at some community music schools. And then I did go back to school to get my doctorate. But by that time, I was working at the Cathedral of St. John the Divine as the associate choir master. And so to answer your question, I, I, I've i really just been in music. Good for you. That is Thank so you. rare. It is. It's so hard to make a living in the arts. It really is. It really is. And I always tell my students it's possible, but I'm not just a singer. I'm not just a conductor. And I take pride in all of the professions that I work in within, within music. Now, what do you listen to? What do I listen to? Oh, I spend a lot of time on the train. I live in Harlem, and I teach at Brooklyn College. So I have about an hour and a half commute. So I listen to a lot. I love Mahler. So I listen to Mahler symphonies. I love LEADER. I listen to a lot of LEADER. I became a subscriber to Spotify, and I do listen to pop music. I just put on a playlist that they've sort of prescribed and sort of listen to that as well. But on on any given day, it could be Brahms, it could be Beethoven, piano sonatas, Bach, (laughs) it's sort of up in the air. (laughs) Just flip a coin. And you're fine
1: on the subway listening to it. Do you have noise-canceling headphones?
0: Yes, yes. It's definitely needed on the subway. It's a, it's a long commute, so I'm happy to have music.
1: Yeah, I lived in Brooklyn, and I went to Columbia.
0: Oh, wow. So, so boy, you understand that
1: commute. Do I know that commute like the back of my hand? And I think that's a good place to leave it, Malcolm, on the mighty A train.
0: I want to thank you so much for giving me your time. And thank you so much for having me. It's, it's been a pleasure to speak with you.
1: Not at all. It's my pleasure. That is singer, educator, conductor, artistic director of Voices of Haiti, and music director of the Desoff Choirs, Malcolm J. Merriweather. Find out more about his wonderful work at desoff.org or at voicesofhaiti.org. You've been listening to Artworks, produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. You can subscribe to Artworks wherever you get your podcasts, so please do. And if you leave us a rating on Apple, it does help people to find us. For the National Endowment for the Arts, I'm Josephine Reed. Thanks for listening.